You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. If you guys would please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be back in that book again this week. Um, for those of you who were here last week, it was an incredible experience. It was really, it was really neat to see. Uh, a lot of people were almost kind of apologetic towards me, like, man, I feel bad for you. You weren't able to preach. And I felt no shame. I felt no guilt or anything um, because I knew just the plain, simple reading of the Word of God was sufficient enough. The text preaches itself. And so God's Word was proclaimed we had a brother just volunteer to come up and pray. It was just amazing to see, you know, leadership in our church, people in our church just rising up and doing what is necessary. So it was, it was a very encouraging time for me to see, especially as a pastor. So, <clears throat> yes, I've been healing from allergies and I drank a bunch of hot tea this morning, been drinking a lot of water, so I'm hoping to get through this all today. But if not... You know, then we'll just read the next four chapters of 1 Corinthians and see what happens. <coughs> so, 1 Corinthians, we will be in the first four chapters. I have selected verses from each chapter, so no, we're not going to read it in its entirety, but we will be hanging out there today. And so, um, just to kind of refocus again, so we try to take this time of the year, especially on our anniversary uh, to really kind of cast some vision, biblical vision and direction, not just abstract or whatever comes to my mind or the elders' minds, but how is the Lord leading us and how does this word direct us to move forward? And that's what takes us to 1 Corinthians and the theme, prepare to build, which you may have seen the beautiful poster in the hallway, prepare to build, and that is going to be the kind of the rallying cry uh, for the next 12 months or so. So I'm going to start with a story, but I'm going to change my story. Since I got through my story, my opening story last week, I've scrapped that and I've come up with a new one. And so a few days ago, I actually came up with a sermon illustration because the plumbing in our home went garbage. And we, one evening on Thursday evening, we heard a bunch of water just kind of pouring into our garage from our upstairs bathroom. Thank God it wasn't a pressurized line, it was just the drain line, but... Nonetheless, my daughter's entire bath was mostly draining into our garage. And so we found out on Friday, it was the result of someone who had worked on it prior, creating really just temporary fixes to really simple solutions. And then, not even like 15 hours ago, I found out that it was the previous homeowner who had hired a plumber... Some of you may or may not know, but I bought my home from a pastor in our church. (laughs) And he had hired somebody to fix the problem because they had the same problem. And so this plumber that he found on a Yelp review uh, had come and fixed the issue. But they were apparently ill-prepared and did a quick fix in order to get paid because it didn't resolve the issue. In fact, all that water kept leaking behind the drywall and eventually built up to the point where it finally just let loose this last Thursday. So needless to say, the prior plumber used the wrong materials, definitely the wrong materials, wrong tools to fix the problem, which resulted in a large amount of water saturating insulation and drywall. So we hired a professional on Friday, for those of you who are worried, and the issue has been resolved with proper materials and proper tools and labor. Last year, last year felt like, as a church, we were just building with the wrong tools or just trying to make quick fixes, temporary fixes that really provided no Long game, like endurance for the long game, which is what we read in Hebrews. As 2020 came, culture swooped in, and I'll be the first to admit that it took me. It swooped in, and it started wreaking havoc within the church, causing division, 
and all sorts of tension. We treated culture like the said plumber, seeing if culture could fix what was broken among us. We invited culture in and trying to take back culture up with, or trying to back our cultural fixes up with Scripture as opposed to taking Scripture to the culture. We masked it over. We masked over our bitterness and anger with Christian niceties and pleasantries. And honestly, at times, we were no more than just whitewashed tombs. We looked really nice on the outside, but sometimes we were just dead on the inside. And as your elders confessed not too long ago, we were the drivers of such division and tension in a lot of ways, failing to manage the project. Like the previous homeowner failed to manage a project at my house. To be fair, this has happened to the church at large, not just Redeemer. This isn't a beat down on Redeemer. It is, in some sense, a little bit of a rebuke to myself and to all of us in general. But those things that happened in 2020, though there has been some healing, it still plagues the church at large today. It's all over. And I will say, in encouragement to Redeemer, there has been a lot of confession. There has been a lot of repentance, a lot of prayer, a lot of healing, especially in the last nine months. There really has. But it's now time for us to look at those temporary fixes, right? those temporary fixes that we put in place, and now time for us to properly rebuild, rebuild with eternal fixes, eternal tools, eternal materials. And so we have an opportunity before us not to build, (coughs) excuse me, but not to only build with the right tools and materials, but to build on the right foundation. So Paul here in Corinth addresses the church because they're dealing with division. They're dealing with factions among the people. They're dealing with intense sin, a dealing with drunkenness, a dealing with adultery and dealing dealing with incest these sorts of practices within the church and so paul comes in in the first four chapters and he pretty much deals with that division right away he doesn't even waste time deals with it calling the church to rightly focus on the foundation of which he laid as the church planter so he calls the newly planted church to refocus on who they are in Christ, and then gives them clear direction on how to rebuild the church upon the proper foundation of which it was laid, which is Christ. And so this is where we as elders want to call the church to be prepared to build. Be prepared to build. So in these first four chapters, we see some tools, some materials, some methods for rightly building up the church. None of these are gained from the culture. These are all the Word of God. And so what Paul lays out today is what we want the church to see as well. We need to be unlike the plumber who showed up unprepared, but be prepared to take up what is necessary to build. And so here is what is necessary for building. And we'll see these in the four chapters. Four things. First is agreement in the gospel. Agreement in the gospel. That's in chapter 1. Second, power of God. The power of God. It's in chapter 2. And careful building. It's in chapter 3. It's more the method. Careful building. And the fourth is Stewarding riches. Stewarding riches. Agreement in the gospel, the power of God, careful building, stewarding riches. So before we get into that, I want to take a moment and and just pray and ask the Lord to be with us in this time. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We often don't think of it, but Rebuke and correction are our blessings. They're what is necessary for the church to grow, to be discipled. And so the 
We can often make fun of the church of Corinth and seeing how they had so many things wrong with them and how Paul just kind of let them have it at times. But Father, this isn't just a letter to the church of Corinth. This is a letter to the church of all time. Father, we are not above failures. We're not above division. We're not above brokenness. So Father, You in Your grace and Your kindness gently call us back to Yourself. And so I pray that in that correction, in this rebuke of Your Word, that we would properly rebuild on the foundation that is laid in Christ Jesus. Help us now in the understanding of Your Word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So in the, in the first chapter. Okay, so one thing I did want to do is kind of have some interactive piece with the kiddos who are sitting around. So where are my kids at? Not like my kids, but where are the kids at in this room? Make, you can make noise. Right there? Okay, there we go. See, look, your parents are quiet, but you don't have to be quiet, okay? So if you have a piece of paper, maybe a clipboard, if you don't, there's some in the back. But what I'm going to do is just kind of, during those four points, just kind of t- ask you to draw a picture. And that picture, hopefully, will kind of correlate with what's going on. So you can draw it, you can color it, and maybe this will help you kind of remember what is being taught this morning, and then you can go and talk with mommy and daddy about it, or whoever it is when you're having lunch, okay? So, I only got to one of these last week. Do you guys remember what picture I told you to draw? The brain. The brain. Yeah, I don't know what else to draw for the word mind. So, go ahead, kiddos. Start drawing a brain. Now, don't take the whole page, right? You've got to have four pictures on there, okay? So, draw a brain, color it in. Some of you may not know what a brain is. You can ask your parents. So, first thing. Agreement in the gospel. I didn't mean that in a condescending way. You may not know what a, you may not know what a brain looks like, is what I meant to say. <laughs> okay, I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul makes this appeal to the church. He gets straight into it, making an appeal. It's not a demand, though he could. He could use his apostolic power to, be, to just say, hey, now listen up, y'all. You need to do this. But he's making an appeal. He has an intention to exhort them to action, not beat them down. He wants them to actually do something in Christ. He wants to inspire them. And yes, it does come through a rebuke, but a rebuke ultimately that would lead to encouragement and action. Because... Inspired laborers, they don't cut corners, they don't cheat on material, they don't go rogue. If you're a really heavy-handed boss or project manager or contractor, the people who work under you are going to cut corners, they don't like you, they're going to cheat, they're going to talk behind your back, all those sorts of things. And so Paul wants them, wants the church, to remain steady, to be faithful to the job. And he wants them to agree. That is to have this identical um, aspect, this identical same manner. And what are they to agree upon? Well, we didn't read this, but the first thing I would say is in verse 4. That they are united. They're unified as saints in Christ Jesus. They are in Christ, verse 4. Stop for a moment and think about this. 
Paul has heard the bad news of what was going on at, in Corinth. What was going on at the church. And he didn't open up with just a can. Right? He opened up with, you are saints in Christ Jesus. And then he got into all their mess-ups. So he's addressing them on similar ground. Here's who you are in Christ. So there's an aspect of grace here. As Christians, we're going to mess up. As Christians, we're going to really ruin things. But Paul says, we are in Christ, creating common ground. You need to be united around this fact that you are being sanctified. He says, be united with the same mind and judgment or opinion. That means they're to be united together in the gospel, both in mind and opinion. Meaning, not conformity, but unity. You don't have to conform to one another, but being unified together in Christ. And why? So that there may be no divisions among you, Paul says. There are divided opinions over various leaders who have which has resulted in jealousy and quarrels. Some follow Paul, Apollos, Cephas. There's these theological camps of these leaders, of these church planters, and now the church is being divided over which theologian or which pastor they like the most or the best. And Paul is saying, you cannot do that. You cannot. And he says, I came preaching the Gospel which is the power of the cross. He didn't come with flattering speech trying to tickle the ears of the church of Corinth or even playing the apostolic card. He came preaching the Gospel alone. And in that simplistic preaching of the Gospel, which we'll get into what that is in a moment, what the Gospel is, that alone was powerful. That alone was the power of God. Paul's saying, I didn't try to rob God of His power by telling you that Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the grave and then threw a bunch of extras on there so it would seem more awesome. No, he's saying, Christ alone is enough. And I didn't have to try to prove anything. So quit looking at me, quit looking at Apollos, quit looking at Cephas as the guys you need to look to and look to Christ. So the first tool and combating this sort of division in our society is to find agreement. It doesn't matter, in, either in the Christian world or non-Christian world, the first place that our society seems to be going to is where we disagree. We just tell you, let's just pick a fight right out the gate. Instead of coming together in unity, we're going to start where we are divided and then separate even further. And that has crept into the church. What we need to do is see what it is that we have in common. Where is our common identity? What is it that is the same of us all who are here in the church as disciples of Jesus? We agree that we are in Christ. And so what we need to do is stop calling one another these titles and labels that the Lord does not put on one another. Stop calling each other the conservative, the progressive, the Republican, the Democrat, the whatever it is. God does not give you that title, that identity. He gives you this identity, that you're in Christ, that you're sanctified, that you're saints. We kind of give each other these labels that are charged in a lot of ways, and create divisions between us. And Paul gives no ground for the church of Corinth to have those sorts of divisions. It's in Christ is who we are. And so when we come together as Redeemer Church, we need to combat and fight against those stereotypes and labels that we are putting on others and go, is this person in Christ? If so, that's who they are. That's who God identifies them as. Thus, I should be identifying them in that way. And so we need to agree and to be of the same mind and opinion regarding the Gospel of Jesus. We can have other opinions about other things outside the Gospel, but when it comes to the Gospel of Jesus, we cannot move. We must be the same. And once we establish our common ground, 
we're able then to rightly work out our differences of opinion. I don't know what the deal was with Apollos. I don't know what the deal was with Paul and Cephas. If one was a better preacher than the other, if, if another one had a better method, strategic method for reaching Corinth, or I have no idea. But we need to start united in Christ, and from there we can actually work out on our differences. It is possible to be united in Christ, to be of one mind in judgment, but have differing opinions. It's possible. As long as those opinions do not contradict the gospel. This could be things in life such as, is it, I'm going to pose these as questions, is it possible to have differing opinions about masks and vaccines and remain of one mind in judgment in the gospel? Is it possible to have differing opinions about which theologians or pastors to listen to and remain of one mind in judgment in the gospel? Is it possible to have differing opinions of government and remain of one mind in judgment in the gospel? And the list can go on and on. Those are the hot topics, of course. We must have those conversations with one another. This is an invitation. The church is to be the place where we can actually wrestle with these things. Discuss them. Disagree. But know that we are united in Christ. And we can do it without quarreling and fighting. And we must do it first, seeing that the other person is in Christ. Sanctified. Even if you wonder if they really are. We have to give each other some grace. Some real grace to mess up in our opinions about things and not quickly turn one's opinion into an indictment right away. I fumbled all over 2020. I didn't realize it in the moment. There's a lot of things I fumbled all over and there would be indictments made against me that maybe I I was this woke guy or whatever. I'm not woke. But these indictments had come because of wrestling through things. And I'm not saying that. I'm not bitter or anything. But I'm just saying, these happen to everybody as well. We have to slow down. Not be so quick to pull the trigger. Right? Ready, aim, fire. Not fire, ready, aim. And so let us be won over by the Gospel of Jesus, the cross of Christ, and nothing else, lest the power of the cross be emptied in this place. And so we need to have agreement in the Gospel. And secondly, we need to build in the power of God. So kiddos, did you guys draw your cool brains? Uh, I'm curious what they look like. Okay, so the second picture... Kids, you with me? You tracking with me? Okay. Thank you, Hattie. And so... uh, What I want you to draw now is a picture of a cross. Okay? Make it as big or as small as you want. It doesn't matter. Draw a picture of the cross. And so, we move on to chapter 2, verse 2 through 5. The power of God. And I, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Christ and Him crucified. Kids, Jesus dying on the cross, this is a huge, huge part of the Gospel. That is the Gospel. Jesus dying for sinners and then resurrecting from the grave and providing sinners new life in Him. And so He makes the case Paul does to the church. He didn't just come out beating them down. He's saying, this is what I wanted you to know. If nothing else, only this. Christ crucified. He is the chosen one. He's the anointed one. The unique Son of God sent to die for our sins. 
He died on a tree as a curse for us, taking on the full wrath of God, the punishment meant for us, so that we don't have to absorb it, so that we could be free. And so regardless of one's status, whether you're just a new convert in Corinth, or you're an apostle or otherwise, all are in Christ because of Him crucified. Paul is not who he is. Apollos is not who he is. Cephas is not who he is because they went to seminary and they're educated and they're really smart. They are who they are because of what Jesus did on the cross. So Paul didn't plant this church so that his name could go out, so that his fame could overshadow the other apostles. Paul didn't care about his own name. And I understand some pastors plant churches so that they can make a name for themselves. Paul wasn't that guy. He demonstrated this by showing that it was God's power, not his own, that God's power was the place of which the church's faith could rest. Your faith doesn't have to rest in your favorite guy. It can rest in Jesus. And so he goes on to remind the church that the wisdom of the cross, this knowledge that you have, this godly wisdom and understanding that you have, was revealed to us by the power of God. And it's not revealed to the world. The world is completely blind to the knowledge and understanding of the kingdom of God, of the gospel of Christ, But you have that understanding. So this idea of wisdom, meaning the content of what is known by those regarded as wise. So what is the content known by those who are regarded as disciples of Jesus? It is this, that Jesus came to die to save sinners. Paul makes that argument even further. Had the world known this, had the authorities known this ahead of time, they would not have crucified the Son of God. But they were completely blind, not understanding, had no knowledge of what the gospel was, and therefore they ended up crucifying Jesus. But understand, that is the very thing that needed to happen so that sinners would be saved. So Paul says to his point, remember, the only reason you have a brain a mind, understanding, theology, a solid philosophy of ministry, an opinion about church leadership and methods is because God opened your eyes to see things that you could not see before. Now remain humble and don't use that knowledge and puff yourself up and start dividing the church. Because Paul goes on even further. He sort of insults them. Understand, God took the weak and made them strong. He took the powerless and made them powerful. He took those by the world's standards who would know nothing and now have all this knowledge. And Paul's saying, you're those people. Without Christ, you would be nobodies. So don't get so haughty or arrogant. Stay low. The church is a paradox. Because the church is strong because... She is weak. The church is wise because she is comprised of fools. The church is powerful because ultimately she is powerless. Paul's point, you can't do anything. You haven't done anything. It's all been Christ. So it's absolutely foolish to create division in the church over a matter of opinion when it is Jesus in His Gospel that has knit us together and has made us wise in Him. When we recall that our faith rests in the power of God, it recenters us to our agreement in Christ and Him crucified. We remember that it was not our power that caused us to know Jesus, but because the Spirit and the power of God overcame our deadened hearts and minds and changed us and washed us over in the blood of Jesus. That keeps us from puffing up, thinking that we're something, thinking that we have some special knowledge or understanding because of something that we have done. Instead, it begins to reorient us in seeing that Jesus died on the cross so that we could have understanding, so that we could have knowledge. 
so that we could know. His death, Jesus' death was not selfish. His power was not kept to Himself. He died for us. He used His power to save us. So therefore, are you allowing the power of the cross to overshadow your life? Or is your power overshadowing those around you? Let's say you win someone over with your position or opinion. Will they have been won over to the power of God or to the power of you? Are you simply trusting in the simple telling of the Gospel? Or are you needing something more intellectual, something more dressed up, something that really puffs up your opinions? We saw last week the Word of God alone was powerful. What else do you need to add to it? (laughs) And I'm afraid we're missing the power of God in the church. We are focused on those who seem to be on top of things, but we have forgotten. Excuse me. A dear friend of mine shared with me his opinions about the brokenness of our churches, seminaries, denominations by saying this. And these are strong words. I hesitated to share them, but I'm going to, anyways. He wrote, I went to a seminary that was presided over by a man who has been banished from evangelical prominence. I'm a member of a church planting network that has been avoiding biblical stances in favor of cultural placation with a laundry list of fallen away, disgraced, abusive, sinful pastors. I've been a part of and led churches affiliated with a convention that is so backwards and sinful as a collective that one side hides abuse while the other defends borderline heretical practices and excuses excuses dishonesty and plagiarism in its leaders for the sake of unity. I am an unapologetic prescriber to the tenets of an anti-Semitic monk who physically abused his protege and schismed the church to try and be more in line with some letters written by a murderous Pharisee. I encourage people in the church to be counseled using a ministry built by a now atheist who was abused by a megalomaniac who leads a cult in the desert. I gladly sing hymns on Sunday written by men who later abandoned the faith and became heretics. This person is talking about, specifically, our Southern Baptist Seminary, Southwestern Seminary, the Church Planting Network, Acts 29, the Southern Baptist Convention, Martin Luther, the Counseling Ministry Redemption Groups, and as far as the hymn writer, Horatio Spafford, who wrote, It Is Well With My Soul, This friend is a faithful friend, believer, member of a church, and has no desire to jump ship. The reason for writing that was not saying, I'm going to just go and start my own denomination, my own movement, my own church planting network, my own blah, blah, blah. Rather, it's a reveling in the amazement of the power of God to overcome such brokenness. Church, we have to stop being surprised at the brokenness around us. We have to stop being shocked by it. We can easily create divisions based on the brokenness, or we can revel in the power of God who saves us, uses us, sanctifies us, equips us, and prepares us through the brokenness. Where can we go that something isn't just royally jacked up and messed up? Who are we going to follow that doesn't also have the propensity to sin and just completely fall away? If we look to anything other than Christ, we are being fools. Absolute fools. And so we have to desire to know nothing among us except Christ and Him crucified. That is the power of God. Nothing else. And this is the only power that will change us. This is the only power that will rightly build us up. This is the only power that will make the church stand strong. We cannot disciple one another on anything or on anyone other than Jesus. Not even upon Paul. 
Paul's saying, don't do that. I have zero power. The power is in Christ. So church, maybe we need to take some time and really consider where we've been going, who we've been running to instead of Christ, and start repenting of that. Start confessing that. We've been wanting to run away from certain entities or organizations or individuals because we have these strong disagreements with them, but we have honestly nowhere to go. God meets us in the mess. He meets us in the garbage. There's none of us in here who are perfect in any way, shape, or form. But there's only one who is among us who is perfect. Christ. So let's begin to revel in the power of God. We are a bunch of misfits in this room. A bunch of jacked up people with a bunch of jacked up stories. And yet we are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That is the power of the cross. And so we move on from the power of God to careful building out of chapter 3. So kids, you drew a brain and a cross, which is kind of a weird combination, but you did. And now, let's see, kiddos, if you can draw a brick wall. You can make the brick wall as big as you want, okay? But draw a brick wall as high as you can, okay? Got it, kids? Kids, you got it? Okay, yeah, we've got a thumbs up. Okay, good, look, i got to know. So careful building. Chapter 3, starting in verse 10. And we'll, we'll read through verse six, or 17. <clears throat> According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. This is where the, the rallying cry comes from. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This is all according to grace, Paul says. That unmerited favor. According to grace. This is not according to Paul's wisdom, Paul's strength, Paul's church planting methods or strategies, but according to grace. And Paul says, like a master builder, that word is the word we get architect from. Paul is a skilled architect. He laid the foundation. The foundation is Jesus Christ. So kids, as you're drawing that brick wall, maybe at the very bottom of the brick wall, you can draw one big block, and in that block, write the name Jesus Christ. So the whole wall is being built upon Jesus. See if you can do that. I reached out to my my buddy who's an architect. He's a believer. And uh, I said, hey, what does an architect do? Just kind of lay that out for me. And so he gave me these these, uh, five different things that an architect does. And he made it clear. He said, This is going to differ from ancient times because in ancient times, the architect was also kind of the the contractor and the one supervising everything. Now it's more split up. But he says an architect is a leader, one who's in charge of all the facets of the project and is ultimately held accountable for the outcomes. This is also a piece of the, there's also a piece of this where the architect is the mouthpiece of the owner, the client or the developer. The architect takes the vision of the owner and carries it out like an ambassador. So Paul is taking out the plans of the Father through his Son Jesus and is laying out the foundation of Christ as a leader, saying this is where you have to build. 
The architect is a visionary, one who charts the path and sets expectations. Here's where we're going. Here's how it's going to be done. Here's what is required of you, church. The architect pays attention to detail. Is one who leaves no stone unturned and is careful to consider all the intricacies of the project. This is what Paul's doing. Hey, I gave you the blueprints and you're going completely off the blueprints. We've got to get back to the blueprints and we've got to focus. And foundation. The building has to be, have strong bones to stand up. From the concrete foundation to the structural steel that creates the framework, these are the parts that have to be done right for the building to last and to withstand the storm. This foundation is Christ. The, the building blocks are the church. Us being built upon even the teachings of the apostles and the prophets being built up into the holy temple of God with the Spirit dwelling in us. So we have a lot of structural integrity and strength if we remain focused on Christ. And this last one that he mentioned is the architect works in order to make what it is that's being built beautiful. There's an aesthetic to design and construction And he says, and God has given us an appreciation for what is good and beautiful. And so Paul is helping the church and will help us see today that the construction project, the building up of the church, has a beautiful, a beautiful aspect to it. That when she's built up, ultimately, when Jesus comes back, it is going to be astounding. It is going to, we are going to be in amazement at what she looks like. And so he instructs the believers, the laborers, Paul the architect does, to take care in how they build. How they build upon that foundation. And this word of taking care has this idea in its definition of a preparedness to respond appropriately. Which is why we come today with that rallying cry, prepare to build. You have to be careful in doing it. You have to come with the right tools, the right materials. And so the church is to carefully and with preparedness build upon this foundation alone. If you do not, it can prove to be fatal. So there's a stern warning from this architect, Paul, to build with the right materials in verses 13 through 15, because fire is ultimately going to test the construction. Some will build with wood, some will build with hay or straw. That is going to burn up in the fire. It's going to be done away with. But there are those, Paul says, who will end up building with those wrong materials, and then in just the nick of time, they are going to be spared. By the skin of their teeth, God is going to spare them, which is a sign of grace. But others will build with gold, silver, precious stones. Those will withstand the fire. And sometimes, even after fire comes, it refines the material, making it better or stronger than it was before. So proper building results in a reward. Not in the sense of you earn salvation, but in the sense of the reward is ultimately Christ. You've been saved, and so your building is out of, building out of what Christ has already done in you and for you. You're not building so that God can go, okay, I'll let you in heaven. That's not the goal. It's, un, it's necessary that we understand the church is more than a collection of people who agree upon a mission statement. We, the church, not speaking of individual bodies, Paul does that later, talking about our bodies being the temple, but here he's talking about the local church being the temple. We are God's temple, His building. He's the one who's building us up, and He's doing it through us. And that's the beauty of the architectural design. The church is built on Christ, and ultimately it becomes this beautiful, living, breathing, functioning temple of God the place of which the Holy Spirit dwells, just like we saw at the tabernacle, just like we saw with the temple in the era of Solomon. And if you recall the story of Exodus, Israel had come out of Egypt and they had come out with resources after they had plundered the Egyptians. They came out with gold and precious materials and fabrics. And so I kind of 
capture this imagery, and Paul does allude back to Exodus later in the book of 1 Corinthians. But just as Egypt was the tyrant who enslaved God's people, so the people of Corinth were enslaved to their tyrant, pagan idolatry, power, and pride. And just as God would allow Israel to plunder the Egyptians and redeem those materials to build the tabernacle, so He would allow the people of Corinth to plunder their pagan ways and redeem them for the building up of the church. For example, Paul will later in chapter 8 address the church in their freedoms, their liberties, knowing that, hey, you grew up in this pagan culture and you were eating meat sacrificed to idols. Well, now you have a clear conscience. Understanding that idols are dead, you can just eat that meat because you're hungry. It's okay. But also, for the sake of carefully building up the church, those same believers who have a freed conscience are called to carefully, Paul uses that word again, carefully examine if it is good to eat meat in front of those who have a weaker conscience. And if so, they are to lay that freedom down for the sake of the body, for the sake of building up the body. And this is why Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are permissible. Meaning, consider your Christian behavior and its impacts on your fellow brother and sister over whether or not you have the right to do whatever it is you want to do. Does that make sense? Paul even goes further to show in the book of 1 Corinthians that he's still united with Barnabas by faith. If you guys remember, if you go to Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas had a a falling out, if you will, over whether or not Mark should go with them on their missionary journey. Paul said, no way. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that history says that he was maybe a little too flaky in the last, last trip, and so Paul didn't want a flaky follower going. And Barnabas was saying, hey, he's good, he can come along. So they disagreed and went their separate ways, But you can see here that Paul still shows that he is unified with Barnabas, even in their disagreement. Paul deeply loved the church to the point that he treated his life as nothing but just a servant to the church, a slave to the church, always choosing to behave in such a way that would carefully build her up with redeemed materials. Things like humility, love, service, grace, mercy. All those things that Jesus has redeemed in Paul, He is now using for the sake of building up the church. And so He addresses the church, imitate Me, do this as well. God has supplied you with everything that you need to build up the church with the materials you have, with worship, with the power of God, with humility, service, peace, trust, faith. All these items... All of these things will withstand the fire. Just like the precious metals, but maybe even under some heat, they will even strengthen. So the church is a big deal. Not to be considered lightly. Paul doesn't, doesn't say, you know, go to church if you want to. I mean, the church is, I mean, whatever it is. Right? He doesn't just shrug it off as nothing. You say, no, this is a big deal. The church is the reason that Jesus died on the cross. If you belittle the church, you're belittling Christ and Him crucified. You can't have one without the other. And there are those who will intentionally try to destroy the church. And Paul says, hey, God's going to destroy them. Like, Let me make no qualms about this. God is not okay with people coming in and destroying His people. But the local church is the power and the beauty of God in display in a community. We have to be careful to build on the foundation that has already been laid, the foundation of Christ. There's a temptation to try and form a new foundation and build upon it, like a foundation of politics or preferences or philosophies. But when we build on those other foundations we will not only find ourselves building on an unstable foundation, but we begin to judge one another harshly for not building on that same foundation. 
We are to agree upon the power foundation of Christ alone and nothing else. And so if you've been building on anything other than Christ, today is the day to repent and come back to the true imperishable foundation found only in Jesus. We need to be careful on how we build with the right materials, redeeming materials, not materials that perish. So how are you attempting to carefully build up Redeemer? And with what materials are you using to build her up? And just be aware of the fire that tests. Remain humble. Stay humble. Some of us think we may be building up with the right material. And then by the grace of God, we find out we're wrong. (laughs) You may notice someone improperly building. Carefully correct them. Do not be harsh. Slow down on the trigger. (laughs) Paul springboards from these chapters into chapter 5 to expose the sin of the people of Corinth with that testing fire. They're they're dividing over their favorite theologian, but meanwhile they're addicted to things like pornography, drunkenness, power. Are we spending more time creating factions in order to cover up the fact that some of us are running home to look at pornography? Running home to the bottle? running home to exercise our power on the internet? Let's make this a bit more convicting. Who is more guilty of sin? The woke pastor who refrains from unholy acts that would be looked down upon even by the world's standards? Or the conservative pastor who secretly participates in sinful addictions? Who? Sometimes we just think the sin that can be seen the most is the most abhorrent, an evil one. But yet, we can't see everybody's thoughts and minds and what's happening behind closed doors. We've got to slow down. We have to be careful in how we build. Making sure we're building on Jesus and building up the church is not something that's done in hypocrisy or with ungodly judgment or worldly wisdom. If we build according to the architectural plan laid out in Scripture, we will watch the church beautify in this community, if not beautify the community. We This is what we do as the church. We show the world that we are knit together in Christ. The world is saying, be divided, but Christ is saying, we are united in Him. That's a totally opposite statement, a totally opposite worldview from everything around us. We show the world that God is with us. The Spirit of God is dwelling among us. We show the world that grace runs supreme. That you can come in here and fumble all over the place and mess it all up. But there's constant outpouring of grace and mercy. We can show the world that God is sufficient and powerful, taking fools and making them wise. There's no reason any of us should be Christian except for Christ alone coming down and saving us. There's no reason I should be a lead pastor in a church if it wasn't not for Christ alone. We are fools, and yet we need to show the world, yes, we are fools, but now we are fools for Christ's sake. And we show the world that we have all things in Christ, and we are lacking nothing. We have everything that we need. There's nothing that the world can provide us That will be a help or an aid. No, we have it all in Christ. You can take whatever you want, world, from us, and you will actually strip us of nothing. We have Jesus. And so we need to be careful in our building. And last, stewarding the riches given to us. So kiddos, last picture. Can you draw a crown? Like a king's crown? Or if you're a lady, a queen's crown. Just draw a crown. Let me read this from chapter 4, 5 through 10. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? 
If then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And with that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. <clears throat> Kids, I know we're at about an hour, but you're doing fantastic. I'll be done soon, and by soon it could be like another ten minutes. Paul makes the case that he is a servant and a steward of Christ Jesus. A servant of Christ, a steward of the mysteries of God. A steward is one really who manages something that is not their own. Paul doesn't own salvation. He doesn't own the things of God. He doesn't own the heavenlies. God does, but God has granted him stewardship of those things as well as the church. So he's a servant of Christ, a steward of the mysteries of God, and that mystery in particular is the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Anointed One, as the mystery revealed. And so the church is not to make any more of the apostles than these, that they're just servants. And Jesus ultimately will expose the darkness. So I don't know whatever angst the church may have, whatever concern or worries that they had about what was happening around them or what was happening within the church, but Paul says, Jesus, the light of the world, is going to expose the darkness. You don't have to try to expose every single thing. You don't have to try to find every single thing out. Jesus is going to do it. He will eventually expose true evil and darkness, and He's not going to turn a blind eye to it. He is the judge of the world, of the universe. He will handle it accordingly. And so ultimately, the light is going to expose the purposes of the hearts and those who have been playing games this whole time. And this is why Paul says, look, you've got to be slow in casting judgment because when the fire comes, there's going to be those who've been building with the wrong material, but by the grace of God, they are spared. And so Paul tells him, so trust what we're saying, trust what I'm saying, and do not go beyond what is, in, what is written or what is instructed, and imitate me. He says that in verse 6 and then 16. So stick to Christ and Him crucified. Don't be quick to judge. Trust Jesus. The light will expose all darkness. Don't lose sleep at night because you feel like darkness is winning. They're not. <coughs> Serve your heart out for the sake of the local church. Consider yourself as nothing, just like we the apostles do. And then last, steward the riches that God has given you. We have access to everything because of Christ. And so we are to take ownership of what it is that we have. We have all that we need. We are more than kings, right? We're like kings. We have access to everything. And what is the church to steward? We're to steward that we are in Christ with one another. We're to share that with one another. We're to consider ourselves least of all within the church so that the church would be built up. We're to live in the light of Christ and not in the darkness of the world. We are to make much of the name of Jesus and not the name of some big-time leader or organization. Without the apostles, the church is already royalty. That's what Paul says. You didn't even need me. Without me, you are already rich. You are kings. This is what Christ has done. I'm just the ambassador. I'm just the architect coming in, laying out the blueprints, showing you what Christ has done in you and what He's doing among the church and what He's doing around the world. So stop attaching yourself to me and attach yourself to Christ. And so this is why, church, we must be slow and humble in our approach to others. We must be slow to grab our rifles thinking we're wolf hunting. Because sometimes we think we're hunting wolves, but we may be hunting just dumb sheep. <laughs> and how can you tell the difference between a wolf and a sheep? By what they eat. Wolves eat sheep. Sheep eat God's Word. And sometimes not enough. 
Trust that Jesus will judge and test with fire and all darkness will be exposed. Don't fret. I'm not saying being lazy or turn a blind eye or anything like that. But man, don't freak out. (laughs) Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid to confront false teaching. Don't be afraid to, to confront wolves. But first take time to know and understand one another before casting judgment is what he's saying. Because casting the wrong judgment is detrimental to, to the church and it destroys. Those walls that those kids are drawing right now, if judgment is done poorly, it tears the walls down. The bricks start falling off. And so there's a better way to live. As servants and stewards of the heavenly wealth that we have received through Jesus, you and I have an, an eternal, endless access to grace and mercy. Peace, trust. But first, first things first. Recognize who you are, church, in Christ. Who does God say that you are? This is a question I love that Pastor Sean says. Who does God say you are? Because we always like to say who we think we are, but that matters little in comparison to who God says you are. And that's what Paul is doing to these messed up saints. You are rich. You are kings. So where is your identity, church? Who does God say that you are? Are you attaching yourself to Jesus or are you attaching yourself to an organization, to a theologian, to a philosopher, to something other than Christ? Who are you? Paul imitated Christ for the church and he told them to imitate Him as He imitates Christ and we are to do the same. We are to call one another to imitate us as we imitate Jesus. That means across this room, you and I have a stewarding responsibility to call one another to follow us as we follow Christ. And we're to do it with the riches of the heavenlies. That means we have to share Christ with one another. We have to talk to each other about Jesus. We have to consider ourselves least of all within Redeemer. Do we come in maybe a little puffed up, our chest out a little bit, like we have something that nobody else does? Or are we coming in low and humble, seeing ourselves as really the scum of the earth, but redeemed by Jesus, willing to serve and do whatever we have to for the sake of the body? We are to live in the light of Christ, not in the darkness of the world. We do that by confessing, by repenting, by turning to the Word, not turning to addictions and sinful patterns. We're to make much of the name of Jesus and not the name of some other big-time leaders or organizations or whoever it is. So church, are we more known for the name of Jesus or for the names of those we follow or read? We are to constantly draw from the reservoir of God's grace and mercy because first, Jesus constantly applies it to us. There's never a moment we don't have His grace and mercy. And secondly, God gives us endless access to them for those who are in Christ. So God has given us all that we need. We don't need anything else. So let us be a church that is known for that sort of love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, that is applied towards us, and let's apply it to one another. I want people to say in this community that those people live like Jesus with one another, and I want what they have because the world cannot provide what I truly need. And so, in conclusion here, I told you about the houses that we had to kind of flip last year. And so we had to flip my wife's childhood home after her father passed away. She inherited it. And it it became really a transformed place of beauty. I was very skeptical in the beginning. And we didn't have really that kind of view in mind a year prior. It was full of mold, spider webs, busted pipes, a host of problems that kept it from being up to code, period. And further, it was a reminder of death, of brokenness, of fading memories. There's a relational component to that. And so we first looked at the home, or at least I did, with disdain, but quickly dreamed of what it could become, both in beauty and in value. And so my wife and I 
we agreed upon a plan, and with the right power and determination, the care that was needed to see it look beautiful, and the right stewardship of resources, we were able to see the house go from a blight and a sore memory to a highly sought-after and desirable home. The work we accomplished in that home caused the value of the community to even rise significantly overnight. It was crazy. Had we not had these right tools in place, we would have been divided, frustrated, without question. But the final product would not have been beautiful. And granted, it wasn't just roses and butterflies the whole time. There was a lot of screaming and yelling every now and then. But there was a lot of fun along the way. A lot of confessing, a lot of repenting, a lot of getting to know one another. It was beautiful. And so church, we need to have a better vision for what the church can become. There are some sore memories and parts of who we are that are broken, but there is a greater and more beautiful picture of the church that we can realize in our lifetime if we would just be faithful to properly building. So moving forward, let us be prepared to build Redeemer Church with agreement in the Gospel and the power of God, with care and with proper stewardship of the endless riches we have been given from our Father in Heaven.